Welcome, Pioneers, to episode 25 of the Wi-Fi Pioneers podcast. We're your hosts, Colt and Remington. Starting with apologies, because we skipped out on you last week. Um, I didn't want to get into details on, on Twitter and stuff uh, last week when I wound up bailing on this, but um, the, sh- the short version up front is my wife and I just uh, bought a farm, literally a, a hundred, hundred plus acre property. Um, we closed on it today and it was one of the wildest deals I've ever done uh, in terms of the amount of stress and babying to get this done deal accomplished. So it just left me completely unable to function on a podcast last week. Um, I haven't really done much writing either on the Substacks or in my, my other Anon where I write books. I've been uh, slacking there as well. This um, was supposed to be a relatively simple transaction and it turned into a very complicated ordeal of trying to purchase a farm. So I want to apologize to you guys for, for not putting out content last week. And this episode is probably going to be a little shorter simply because I am in the middle of um, juggling all, you know, coming down off of this, uh, this deal and now juggling a pretty, pretty significant move to this new property without getting into too much into the weeds of, of the deal. Um, the reason it wound up becoming so stressful is because the seller kind of like halfway through the process was almost changing his mind and he wasn't, he just stopped communicating is what happened. So we're trying to like get extensions for the um, closing date, which is kind of normal when you, especially when you do a bigger deal like this, because you got to get appraisals, you got to, because it's farmland, you have to get a special farm appraisal. You have to, um, you know, all the, all the normal stuff getting, I was waiting forever to get my tax returns done. So when we started pushing the deal, pushing the uh, closing date back, it was coming down to like the last second before he'd sign it. And it was just becoming really weird and passive aggressive about it that um, the realtors, you know, being a small town like I'm in, the realtors know each other. Um, so it's not like they, they, you know, they all have a good relationship with each other. So they're talking and they've, they've known this guy for years. And it's like, yeah, he's just not talking to us. I don't know what's going on. He's not talking. He's not answering. And then we, we they'd hound him, hound him. He'd finally sign an extension. And then we got you know, other questions that need to be answered. And he just, at every step of the game, he was just dragging his feet on things. Um, and the, uh, realtors actually, I think they wound up threatening to sue him if he didn't go through with the deal because overnight he just went from passive aggressive, not responding to all of a sudden super cooperative. It was a really weird thing. And uh, I know there's a term for it with you, if you sign a real estate contract as a uh, seller, and then you just don't sign on the closing date, you just blow up the deal. It's like, um, I don't know, like nonconformity or something. I forget the term, but there's actually a, a term for it. And realtors can sue because you sign a contract to accomplish a deal. And he was, we were legit concerned. He was just going to just ghost us and that it would just fall apart. Um, so that was a, something I've never encountered before. You know, I've never encountered a seller with cold feet. I mean, I, maybe in your world, you see stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, so many things can happen right at the last minute. It's, that's why anytime, anytime you're used to doing deals, you just have all this, uh, neuroses right at the last minute, even if you're not the one, you know, throwing wrenches in the deal. Cause you just know, uh, know the, the forces are at work with, with various other people in the deal. So just case, do you think it, in your opinion, do you think it was the realtors threatening to sue that, that eventually convinced him to come around? 
I do. I, I think that's, I think they must have done something like that. Um, because again, without getting too into the weeds on the details, there was like that. And there was one other option to exercise and both of them were kind of a threat. So they exercised one of the two and it got him moving. Right. Cause like, yeah, we could have sued. There was other avenues of, of purchasing this property, but we're, uh, we're, we're coming into, we were already in the spring. We're coming up the summer soon. Uh, farmland that's not managed at the very beginning of the year, you lose the entire year. So I, I was weighing, like, I wanted to make some concessions that I otherwise wouldn't have made. Nothing, nothing financial, nothing like, um, I didn't overpay or anything stupid like that, but I'm storing a bunch of his equipment and personal property, um, for kind of an undetermined amount of time because it was the only way to get him to respond to, uh, to finish this damn deal. And it's like in the long, in the long run, it's a very small concession, right? Storing some, some furniture and other personal property, uh, from the seller, which is again, whoever who buys property and then, you know, keeps the, the prior owner's stuff on there. But in order to get active on the farm right away, which I, I got to do, you know, starting next week, I got to hit the ground running with this thing. So to, to do that, I had to make this concession because yeah, if we had, sued him or whatever, well, that could have been a year long process or, um, you know, other options we could have exercised would have left us in the middle of the summer at best. And we would have missed out on, you know, half the growing season. So it's, those are some of the things I was weighing up against as, um, how to deal with that. And it just, yeah, it was nuts. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because all those things sound like they would decrease the transaction value of the property substantially. And so all this dude was doing was really hurting himself. Uh, <laughs> and in a lot of ways, you could have really stuck it to him if you wanted to. Um, you know, if, sometimes when people are determined to hang themselves, sometimes you just got to let them do it. Uh, and even though it's frustrating because you set up your life for this transaction uh, and, and you know, cleared out your schedule, made accommodations for it, planned to, to have the farming season their way, uh, sometimes sellers or sometimes just people on the other side of the transaction they're going to destroy value and, and you just have to have to deal with it. And, and uh, maybe there's some consequences for them on the other end. Uh, were you thinking about exploring some other options on the transaction? I was. And my biggest holdup to it was the fact the time penalty paid. So um, like you said, I could have really stuck it to him. I could have hurt him. I possibly even could have gotten this property cheaper in the long run, um, but cheaper by maybe a few thousand, a few tens of thousands of dollars. Well, the money I'm going to make between now and the end of summer, um, it's going to be pretty significant, you know, um, and it outweighs any of the, the savings I would have gotten by going these other legal routes. Like, yeah, I could have stuck it to him and hurt him financially, but I would have hurt myself just as much. Like the timeline for work in the farm and the money to be made by meeting that timeline outweighed all the other options, in my opinion. Yeah. So in, in this situation, you can end up being in a spot where you, you don't really have, you, you don't really have the ability to walk away, right? There's a big loss to your life if you walk away from the transaction. And so it's really frustrating because then you end up in a situation where this dude, uh, you're, you're paying the consequences of his, their shitty actions or stupidity. Um, and yeah, that's just you know, part of the game and transactions, I guess. Uh, so the, the only thing I can say is, yep, this is part of the, the process and 
and you just know that anytime you're transacting, there's going to be dudes who do this stuff. But the other part is, you know, just make sure that you have, if you can, backup options to walk away. Uh, is walking away is the number one motivator to get these people in line uh, when they thought that they had you by the balls. Yeah, and like from his, I don't think at any point from his point of view, he had this "I've got you by the balls" attitude. It wasn't one of those types of deals. Um, I don't know what was going on in his head if he just went into some kind of depression because he didn't want to sell the property um like long story short this was his vacation property and he was kind of forced to sell it so i don't know if he just got depressed and was just like in an emotional spiral i don't know if he like i don't know what he was trying to do on the other end at no point did he make any kind of move to um do anything other than just not talk to us so it's really hard to attribute his motivations when there was no communication but um you know we we would have been willing to walk away if things it wasn't us who was walking away I said there was no walking away it was just either he signs or the deal blows up and then we go through the next legal action um and instead it was like well before we go to that route because that's going to be an even bigger headache for me basically the realtors threatened to sue or whatever threat they made and then um I spoke to him directly as like, yes, you can store your stuff on my property. It's when, when it's mine, you know, after we close, you can store your stuff there until, and give you, you know, a month, two months to, to get it out of there. Right. You should have been doing this three months ago when we made first sign the agreement, but whatever, like get your shit together. I'll give you time to do it. Um, not something I would have otherwise done. Like if this, had, if we were doing this deal in the middle of November, I would have let him blow it up because there's no farming in November. I've got, you know, four months to uh, chase down other options, but do it in the middle of spring. I was willing to, to concede a bit more because, like I said, I'm going to make a lot more money this summer off of some relatively minor concessions. So that was kind of my thought process on that. Yeah, so maybe it wasn't necessarily intentional on his part. Maybe he was just self-destructing. Could be, very well could be. That happens all the time. I mean, there's just a flood of emotions for, for transactions like this. Uh, and you, you'll see this a lot when there's like a, if there's a family that's, that's had this particular property for generations, they may think they want to sell it and that thing can fall apart X number of ways <laughs> right before the, right before the closing date. Uh, same thing with these, you know, these boomer businesses where it's been, some dude's been not a solopreneur, but, uh, but the whole thing has kind of. Uh, been carried on his back for a long time. He's been the go-to guy and he hasn't figured out a transition plan. He hasn't figured out any way to um, to walk away from the company. Uh, that's going to be a, that's darn near a divorce for him. And uh, and he's doing it, you know, optionally <laughs> and not, or by, you know, by choice, not being forced to. Uh, it, it's amazing how many different ways the emotions can get in the way of a, a perfectly good deal and then just create all these headaches for everybody involved. I mean, I should say, I, I rag on uh, brokers a lot. Uh, the, the, the two situations in which I see a lot of value in brokers is one, if you need to maintain a lot of anonymity and you just have no way to, to facilitate that any other way than a broker, um, maybe, maybe you should do some more legwork and figure out that, <laughs> how to do that. Probably worth it. But the other way is uh, that there's just so many ways deals could fall apart at the, you know, in the, in the last mile. And so uh, brokers are trained in this. They've known... They know all the ways these things fall apart. They typically know how to prepare them ahead of time so that they don't. They kind of put the deal on a fast track to make sure it goes to completion. So that's that's really where brokers earn their commission is 
it's more of an insurance policy, to be honest. So for, for all the trash talk that we did a couple episodes back about brokers and real estate brokers, I will say in this transaction, the realtors earned their commission. Um, not just because they were able to keep this guy from, from losing his mind and backing out of the deal, but, um, the, my realtor, my end of it, she's been a realtor for over 30 years in this town and she's sold this particular property every single time it's been sold over the last 30 years. Um, and she knows person, she's lived in this town for 70 years, right? So she's 70 something years old. Um, she's lived in this town her entire life, been a realtor here for 30 years. So when we were tracking down information about the property and asking, you know, who dug this canal, who did this, who installed this, she knows the, um, the last 50 years of owners because she grew up down the freaking road of that house. So like, and all those people are still in town. So I know every person who's alive, who's owned this property going back, uh, to, to the, what the seventies or so. So that wealth of information alone was, was invaluable. And then, um, dealing with, uh, you know, an agriculture property like this and an older property, an old, an older farm, she knew all the right questions to ask and the right people to get the answers from and, uh, the right people to do the inspections, everything. So I, I gotta say in this case, you know, it, it was well-earned and, and I was grateful to have somebody who knew what, what she was doing. Um, yeah, you, you gave me two other little light bulbs there. Uh, if you don't mind me continuing on, um, you mentioned how family can blow up a deal. Last summer, we made an offer on a different farm that was, uh, the, the parents had died and left it to five kids. I don't think that property is sold yet because, you know, one of them doesn't want to let go of it because it's their childhood home. Another one thinks that it's worth, you know, a bajillion dollars and won't accept anything less. The other three are like, I'll take a dollar. I don't care. Like, just give me any money and I'm out. So it's five siblings arguing over a property. Like what a freaking nightmare. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention was you said, um, you mentioned boomers being, uh, married to their business. Um, my, my father was supposed to retire and sell off his business in the trades. And now he's reduced himself to three days worth of work because he just can't let go. He justifies it as, um, he justifies it as he just needs something to do to stay alive and keep busy, even though he doesn't really need the money, but he just can't let go. He's, he's been doing it for 40 years. He can't stop. Yep. Uh, I've seen that so often. Uh, it's funny. You, to, to engage in these transactions, sometimes you have to have this kind of, uh, this really optimistic view of how it's going to go. Cause if you told somebody ahead of time, how much of a headache it was going to be, a lot of times they'd be like, eh, not worth it. I'm going to move on. Uh, so, so sometimes even for better, it's, you kind of like, uh, you kind of have to delude yourself into thinking it's going to be easier because otherwise you might not start the deal and it might not be, you know, it might be worth doing, but you might not do it anyway because you just notice how many issues are going to arise. But, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's kind of like, um, schizophrenic thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's just you, anybody who's been, been through a lot of deals, they know time kills deals. They know all the ways that it can go sideways. And, uh, and anytime something starts feeling a little off, they start going, okay, what's, what's going on underneath here? How can we get on the right side of this? Uh, cause otherwise people can spiral 
people can spiral for no good reason. It just happens. Well, and the only thing that saved me, I think, from um, the only thing that kept this deal on track was the fact that I'm already so primed for the competency crisis. I was expecting every single player to fail at some point, which kept me in constant communication with every player and watching every piece of the deal move so that as soon as one thing was done, you know, I was pushing the next person, forcing my way into being a priority for that next person and uh, putting myself at the top of their priority list. So um, apologies if you hear that noise in the background. I got a couple lambs in the other room there and they, they think they're hungry. I literally just fed them and they, uh, they're screaming right now. But um, anyway, I stuck to this. I stuck to every single person in this deal from the lenders to the um, appraisers, the, the insurance people, every player that was putting this piece together. I did not let up for an inch. So as soon as something wasn't happening and somebody wasn't responding, I was there to, to fix it. Um, that's probably the only reason why it didn't blow up. Um, and I, cause if I just kicked back and said, cool, we signed the documents. Now let's just wait for it to happen. The whole thing would have blown up. It would have never happened. It would have never come through, come true. Yeah. Good on you for doing that and, and sticking on it. I think that's going to make a huge difference moving forward in so many ways in life. Uh, just imagine how much effort is going to go to waste just because if you have a transaction, you're going to have five to 10 people involved at least. And uh, any one of them can blow up the transaction through just dragging their feet, stupidity, you know, being incompetent. Uh, and so imagine all of these people who think that they're actually going to be doing business, but they just don't have the uh, what's the word? I don't know. Perspicacity <laughs> for hundred dollar word. I hate hundred dollar words. Um, but they just don't have the wherewithal to keep everything on track with all of these, all, all these people who could totally derail the deal. And all you need is one of them. Now that these people are going to be, you know, not just, uh, 10% of the population, 20% of the population, there'll be 50, 60, 80% of the population behaving this way. Imagine how hard it is going to be to get anything done. And, the only people getting things done are going to be that. Let's be honest. You're going to have to be extreme. Yeah. And you got to price into your time the fact that you're going to do somebody else's job for them. Because if you don't, it doesn't get done. And if you're waiting for somebody else to do the job themselves, you know, and, and I'm not, not saying every player in the game, like you're not doing the whole transaction yourself, but you have to be prepared for somebody to fail somewhere and for you to step in and do the job for them on your time because the bigger part of the deal is going to implode if you don't. Like in my case, I had to coordinate all the insurance uh, the end of it. Like nor normally the lender just says, who do you want to use? Um, I say, hey, I'm going to use these guys, gave her the company, gave her the contact info. And uh, after a couple of days, she was like, hey, could you get them to put this together for me? Because they won't answer my calls. I'm like, I'm on it. Like, you know, I I'm not, I need the insurance for this or, you know, to complete this transaction and if the lender can't get them to answer her freaking calls to put together her proof of insurance for the deal you know, the, for the lender end of it i'll get it done not my job but i'll get it done because i can't co close this deal without it you know and that's just just one example you know at some point you're going to have to step in and accomplish something because if you don't you blow up the deal and you lose everything and the thing that i do right now that i think has actually helped a lot and granted, this may sound a little extreme to people, but it's it's paid off for me so far massively. Uh, is I just budget probably about four times what I what I would expect it to take, and I block that out of my schedule. 
so that no matter what, I have full bandwidth to devote to that and make sure that it gets done. Uh, especially when there's any substantial amount of the transaction or some sort of line of effort that, uh, that depends on other people. And especially so when it's not just one or two other people, there's for each party involved, who's a separate entity, uh, it's like add a ton of time onto it because it, it's, they don't just, the, the delays and the errors aren't just additive. They compound and multiply They're like rabbits. So, uh, if you, if you're able to, to budget in a lot of flexibility on your time, you can handle a tremendous amount of crap that they're going to throw at you. And, uh, and that will pay off huge because hardly anybody else is thinking this way. Hardly anybody else is prepared for the competency crisis and you're just going to mop up. Um, I've heard one other kind of rule of thumb for how you should budget this time. And it's, uh, um, uh, times two and then change the, the units. So, uh, if you think something's going to take one week, uh, times two is two weeks and then change the units is two months. <laughs> uh, that sounds a little extreme. It's not, trust me, it's not, it happens. Oh, it's definitely not. It's, it's crazy how it, it doesn't just go a little over. It goes over by a major multiple. When we first made the offer, you know, we, we made our initial dollar amount offer and then a, a proposed closing date. And realtor said, uh, you know, let's just put down April 15th. And I said, not a chance. I go, put down May 15th and then we'll do extensions. And she's like, oh, that's too much time. Cause I, you know, I think we made, I don't, this is like February. I think at least February when we made that, made the offer. And she's like, there's no way you're going to need that much time. I said, there's no way it's going to be done in April. So there's not a chance you got to have the appraisers. You got to have, you know, um, the insurance, you got to have this, that, the other, all these people got to come together. I said, it's not going to happen. I said, there's zero chance. So she, she put down May 1st and guess what? We put the, the final addendum extending the closing date to May 15th. Now it turns out we came in just under that. Um, but it was damn near May 15th. I knew it wouldn't be, uh, May 1st. Yeah. So I have, I have kind of just a, a quick anecdote about that. I, I had a particular deal a few months ago, uh, where I want to say it probably took me two or three weeks of brainstorming with the other party to, to work out a solution on a, on a transaction. And, uh, and it was really productive conversation, really collaborative effort. And, and we really wanted to do it. And, uh, you would think that between two you know, business owners that, that, that process is pretty much done at that point, right? You've, you've knocked out the big points. Um, but then we had to take it by the attorneys and, um, we ran it by our attorneys, which took probably two weeks. And I was pretty frustrated with that because there's no reason it shouldn't have been two days. Uh, it was not a complicated document. It was a really straightforward structure uh, and um, uh, had some really cool ways of solving some some transactional issues. And uh, uh, I just, <laughs> the, the attorney, you know, cost two weeks and didn't really add anything. I was just kind of like, okay, well, I guess all you told me was I did a good job building the document because you didn't have to change anything. Um, although, you know, of course, they're going to change a few, they're going to put some red lines in there just to make sure you know they earned their fee even if it's like capitalizing or I don't know, something <laughs> changing one word to another, that's completely irrelevant, even to attorneys. But then we sent it to the other party's attorneys. They took three months to review a two page document, three page document, I guess, if you include the appendix, uh, three months for three pages. And, uh, it, it just blows your mind. All the, all of the dates and timelines that we had on there just got obliterated. <laughs> obliterated just because of their attorneys and uh they just now got it back to us and so now we can we can get on track towards closing but uh it's i mean 
this should have been done four months ago. And now we're finally on a, a more predictable timeline. If we had any sort of deadline to hit, those attorneys would have destroyed the entire deal, even though, you know, 95% of the issues had already been resolved and, and prepared and, and handled by us. What kills me about like attorneys and um, CPAs and, and any of these types, the bill I wind up getting from them is for like five to 10 hours, right? You know, whether it's my, my accountant or it's, um, you know, a lawyer dealing with something, it's, you know, a couple hours worth of uh, billing, but it takes weeks or months, exactly like you said, to get it done. So it's, you build me for five hours of work. Five hours is, is a long morning or, or late afternoon, right? It's, it's half your, a little more than half your day. What took months to get this done? You know, it's like either have the professional courtesy to tell me I'm swamped and you're not a priority, just point blank. You are not my priority. I'll get to you later. Um, so I have the option to go find somebody else or just fucking get it done. You know, you only build me for five hours. Why did it take months to do five hours worth of work? Uh, the short answer is uh, they're dead inside. <laughs> I obviously not every accountant attorney is like that, but just the nature of the work, they die inside especially if they've been at it for a long time. Um, even if they own their own firm, they die inside. Uh, it's, uh, they actually really, really dread doing their job. It's kind of like um, a lot of software engineers are like that. They really dread doing their job. So what I specifically look for, and we've talked about this before, is you know find somebody with the name on the shingle. They're going to have a lot more you know uh, skin in the game. But there's an additional point that I don't think gets discussed much, which is like they need to have a good life and uh, they need to not be overworked. Like if they truly are enjoying life, they can probably get around to your work pretty quickly if they want to, you know? So I actually like when I see a really good attorney or a really good accountant who's only working two days a week. Uh, that means, first of all, they've got bandwidth. If I need to pay for their time, uh, I can pay a premium. I'm happy to do that. Um, and second of all, you know, if, if uh, it's not that big of a deal for them to, um, you know, to, to make some sacrifices. Uh, and so... And they're just not burned out, you know. They actually do way better work. They're they're way more clear headed. Uh, and as they get older in their career, they should be able to do this. They should be able to do the amount of work that took them, you know, five days a week before. They should be able to do that in two days now. They should be way faster at it. And so uh, I think that's actually a good sign. It's not a sign of a lazy uh, professional. It's just a sign of somebody who's accomplished. I think and and recognizes that there's only so much they can do uh, professionally without getting burned out and then just being terrible at serving their customers. Yeah. What frustrates, frustrates me, because I understand everything you just said. What frustrates me is the lack of honesty. It's like, if you tell me straight up, I'm burned out, I'm not going to get to it right away, or you're not a priority. I have higher paying customers or whatever, you know, I'm going on vacation and I don't care about your problem until I get back. I can handle honesty. I can handle blunt honesty. I prefer it. Just tell me so I know what to expect. But when I send it to you and you say, oh, yeah, this won't take any time at all. And then it's months. And that's me hounding you for months. That's what, what gets me. And it's like you said, they must be dead inside. Because to to have that lack of respect for your customer, to to not be able to give them your uh, proper expectation and timeline, you have to just be dead inside or, or just not see them as any sort of human being and just have contempt for your customers. It's one of those two, as far as I can tell. 
I'm having that exact situation right now with one of my attorneys and he's on my side, right? I just don't have a better alternative right now. And as you said, yeah, it's really frustrating. He didn't, he, he could have just said, Hey, I don't have time to do this. Okay, fine. I'll find somebody else. Uh, but now I'm so frustrated. I want to fire him. And if I fire him, he's not getting the job again. <laughs> so, and, and then I'm never going to refer anybody to him. Right. I, I don't know. I, I just don't get why. I don't get the dishonesty, as you said. That doesn't make any sense to me. It's just, it just seems irrational. Maybe maybe it's because once you're dead inside, you just lose all will to live and then you don't even care about you know serving your clients well. But uh, yeah, it's just part and parcel of the competency crisis, right? And, and it may be that they were at one point highly competent and reliable, and now they're just so burdened because as we've said, if you're competent now, you're carrying the weight of eight, nine people on your shoulders. And it's just a matter of time until every one of these people breaks. It's it's literally it's literally Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, and okay, so um, kind of switching over to the trades. I mentioned how my father is still working in, well into retirement because because of um, not wanting to let go. In his younger years, he could not turn down work ever because the money was too good. He would work. 12, 14, 16 hour days. At one point he had a, a commercial shop on a major highway, which did great business because it was on a major highway. And then he had another shop set up at his house for the overflow of work. So he'd go to his business, he'd go to the, the location on the highway, work for 12 hours, then come home and work an additional four hours in in, in a shop at, at home. And he'd do this six days a week and then just die on, on Sundays, basically just wake up and die on the couch by, you know, nine or 10 AM. Um, cause you know, he'd work on working himself to death and then go right back to it. And it's not like we were hurting for money at the time. Um, you know, I, I was a kid during, during these years. Um, there was no hurting for money. In fact, he was flush with cash with money everywhere because he was working like a maniac. He just couldn't stop and he hit burnout. So I can easily see these types of attorneys and CPAs having the same thing where they just won't turn down work and they become overwhelmed um, and it, it fries them mentally. They can't keep up with any of the work they're doing and it takes months now, but they can't tell any customers no, either because they're greedy and or because um, you know, greedy in the worst case or if they're more altruistic, it's the simple fact that they know they're one of the only competent people in town. So they feel an obligation to take every client that asks and they get burned out. And at a certain point, you just got to say, Hey, no, I can't take you on no more new customers. Go, go figure it out yourself. And again, that's not the answer you want to hear at first, but that forces me to go find somebody who can produce what I want and, and work on my timeline. You know, it's just, you have to know when to say no. Yeah, what's the dividing line between purpose and masochism? I don't know. Um, what was your your dad? What was he? Uh, how was his demeanor during that time? Unbearable, unbearable, and unbearable, impatient, and dealing with a preteen and teen boy. You know, basically, it was my preteen to early teenage years, which is like the time you need a father to have his most the most amount of patience, right? Because that's when you're testing him the most. And he had no patience left to give and no time left to give. Like, um, those are the years when you run your own business, uh, kind of a segue here into some parenting, but those are the years where you want to be slowing down enough to, to pull 
your kids into the business with you so they can start to learn something from you, especially a trade. Like if your kids can work alongside you and learn a trade, but you can't be working 16 hour days and having no patience left and mentor at the same time. So instead of being able to bring me into the fold, we had years of resentment towards each other because I didn't, uh, you know, because all he did was work. And in, in, from his point of view, all he was doing was providing for an ungrateful son. And it's like, well, little column A, little column B, you know, if you'd rolled it back to 10 to 12 hours worth of work and, and set, you know, sacrifice some of the cash, we could have uh, worked together and that would have completely changed trajectory for everything. If I learned his trade when I was, you know, uh, really competently when I was a teenager, I probably would have taken over his business form would have completely altered the course of my life. But, uh, instead he, he burned every bridge of any potential apprentice. Um, not just me, but other guys who wanted to apprentice with him. He burned those bridges because he couldn't stop working long enough to teach, to stop, stop working and teach would cost him money or the opportunity for money. So, you know, that's something you really got to remember when you're running your business too, is, you know, when you do this one man operation and you just take on everything yourself, you never offload the work. And when you do that, you can never offload the work and you wind up in your sixties or seventies, unable to sell your business, nobody to sell it to. And you just, all, all you can do is keep working it and then die. How awesome would it have been if you could have spent that time with him, you know, starting at 12, I would have loved that. I would have loved, you know, like apprenticing. Uh, with my dad or something during that time in some kind of trade. Uh, imagine how much you could have learned like real life stuff, not stupid school. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, as you said, you know, that, that devil taps it because uh, you have quality time with dad and he's making money and he's teaching you the things that you need so that he can, you know, step back from the business a little bit and have a better quality of life later. Like what a win in like multiple directions. Uh, why, what was the particular like psychosis that, prevented him from doing that. So he's never been patient to begin with. Um, that's part of it, but it was just greed. And like, now that I'm in my forties and he's, he's pushing 70, he's finally like slowed down cause he had to physically. And he actually opens up and talks to me, you know, like adults now. And, um, you know, he just, he saw dollar signs and any hour he wasn't working was an hour. He wasn't making money. And it wasn't like he was, it was a desperation. It was just like, oh my God, I can't believe how much money people are throwing at me. I got to grab it all. And I swear if he could have worked 20 hour days, he would have, he, he would have just, just worked, but it, but his body gave out on him. You know, if he didn't collapse on Sundays, he would have worked all day Sunday too. He just couldn't stop himself during that time. And it, it turned into like a 10 year period where he, it was just money all over. It didn't slow down until, um, until some personal life things caught him in the ass into divorce and other stuff, but um, which is a whole other story and actually unrelated to working like a maniac, if you believe it or not. That you know, working sixteen-hour days is not what tanked his marriage. Um, that's a whole other story for another time, though. Involves a lot of pills and white women. But um, anyway, yeah, he just he just got greedy, and that's don't get so greedy that you put your family second. You know, your family doesn't care after a certain point if you have a trophy wife which is a whole other conversation you know that's a problem but your kids they don't give a shit especially if you're for fathers and sons every father needs to understand his little boy as he grows up wants to be just like you and if you give him the opportunity to work with you and train him he'll take it but 
not if you don't have the patience to train him properly, to teach him. You know, if you're not a patient man and you teach your son, he's going to get resentful and he's going to walk away every single time. But if you're patient and you can teach him what you're doing, the fun is in learning to be like dad. That's what, that's what boys like. That's the fun part. You don't have to make the work fun. The fact that he's learning how to be like his father is what's fun about it. And that's the part he's going to get to cling to. So if you can slow down enough to teach, it will pay dividends. Even if your kid doesn't take over your business for you, the relationship you build and the future you're giving to your kid is massive. You cannot underestimate that. Man, a lot of great points there. Uh, I think Cerno underlines this a lot. Uh, it's your time that they need. Uh, and as you said, after, after a certain amount of money, they don't really care, right? Kid's not, he's not counting how much money you're making. Um, and two is you're really investing in your future relationship. Uh, and three is, I think Cerno also made this point recently, is uh, boomers especially just totally missed the boat about passing on the American legacy, passing on the family legacy. They just kind of viewed it as the the next generations are, there's this harsh, sharp dividing line and there's nothing that's going to be passed from the parents to the kids uh, in many ways. Like you see all these boomers, you know, having reverse mortgages, not passing any inheritance on to their kids or passing it on at such a late point in life that it's irrelevant for building the quality of your life. Whereas investing in your kids is a lifelong process. It starts really early. Everybody knows that, but people forget about it when the kid's five and goes off to school. Uh, no, you're, you're passing off way more than just, you know, getting the kid to 18 years old. Imagine all of the lessons that you can impart to them. Imagine all of the skills you can impart to them. Imagine the relationship you can build, the trust you can build, and the ability for you to pass off your legacy and compound that legacy instead of it being wiped out in between generations and then the next generation starting over. Do you think with your dad, it was like a generational thing or was it just his thing? Um, part of it, so, so Ben in general are really poor teachers to their sons. Uh, I've noticed this quite a lot. Um, there's an expectation and it's not just boomer. There's an expectation amongst men that I had to learn it my way. You have to learn it my way too, which is not me teaching you. I figured it out on my own. So there's an expectation that you figure it out. And sometimes it's really stupid, right? Like, you know, um, I went hunting last year with, with somebody local and his, his 10 year old son or 11 year old son, whatever the junior hunt is came with us. And the kid didn't know how to operate a bolt action rifle. Like he, he, the kid knew basic safety, not to keep his finger on the trigger, not the point of it. He knew all that stuff, but he didn't know how to operate, load and unload the bolt action rifle. So he's trying to figure it out and he's, he's popping the magazine from the bottom with, you know, the built-in mag release and the spring falls out and other shit. And it, you know, his dad's coming unglued and it's like, did you ever show him how to load and unload the rifle? And the answer was no, he never showed him. So how the fuck's the kid supposed to know? Now, you can, you can expand that to all these topics where they just don't teach. And it's a weird male phenomena where they just, they expect you to just know, and maybe you expect an adult to just know, but kids, if you don't teach them, they're going to do weird shit till they figure it out or get yelled at. So that's part of it. Um, but you mentioned something else too, with the boomers, the, and this kind of uh, dovetails into your question a bit, but the boomer generation was the first generation where you had not just two working parents, but career parents, right? Because 
every generation women worked. They had side jobs, they were house cleaners, babysitters, whatever else. But this was the first generation where women really had a career, full-time 40-hour-a-week career. So boomers offloaded a lot of the responsibility of raising their kids to the public schools, to nannies, to, to um, television, weird shit like that. So it's one of the reasons like there's a, such a disconnect between boomers and millennials because they weren't as hands-on parents, but they also um, made life so easy for millennials. They didn't let them go out and get hurt. They were the first helicopter parents, right? So the thing about participation trophies and like a lot of millennials never left the house by themselves until they're like 12 years old, right? I, I mean, we were five, six years old running through the woods and it's like, if we didn't come back, I think that we just, we would have been a tax write-off would have been the treatment from our family. But, um, you know, the, the, the millennials were very sheltered because of uh, just this disconnect upbringing compared to how the boomers were raised. When the boomers who do have wealth die, the millennials are going to, that inherit that wealth are going to squander it instantly because there was no teaching from generation to generation, like you said, about um, not just how to be a family, but how to manage money, how to manage that type of stuff. So you have a generation that was, um, for better or worse, millennials just don't have money, right? They can't afford housing. There's a lot of issues going on. And again, some of that's their fault. Some of it's not. A lot of it's not. But you have a generation that's never had access to real wealth. And when they turn around and inherit 500000 or two, three, four million dollars from their parents, that money is going to last about four seconds. And then the millennials going to be even broker than they started because at no point have they had the skills or discipline or knowledge of how to handle large sums of money. Boomers have hid that away as well. So there's a like from every angle, they have not taught their children. And it's just, it's incredible. Wow, lots of lots of great points there. Jeez, I, I was as you were saying those things, I was just checking them off. I was like, "Yep, I see that. I see that. I see that all the time. All of those things." Uh, I I just come back to this all the time. Boomers uh, were the generation that threw away the American legacy uh, in so many ways. In so many ways. Um, but I I do see what you're saying about you know maybe it's also just a masculine thing that sometimes we suck at teaching. Uh, so for example, my grandpa, I always wanted to help him, uh, when he was working on, you know, trades type tasks, he was really sharp, knew a ton of stuff, wanted to learn all those things with him. But every time I tried to help him, all he did was have me run errands. Uh, he didn't actually show me anything. And so after, you know, a few days of that, I was like, well, screw this. I'm not going to help anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else <laughs> or I'll pretend I'm so busy looking for whatever you wanted me to find that it took the whole time. Uh, huge opportunity missed because he just didn't recognize the opportunity to teach me, to invest in me. Uh, he just wanted to get the task done. And that's, that's how he viewed his day. Funny you mentioned that because uh, of all things, uh, I saw this TikTok video a couple weeks ago. TikTok is again, one of those things where it's either digital fentanyl trash or like YouTube, there's just random diamonds in there that, that pop up. And this guy, he's a farmer and, you know, he's older. He's, he looked at about 50s and he goes, you know, all the ranchers are in their 60s now. There's hardly any farmers or ranchers now that are under 60 and there's virtually none under 40. And he goes, my kids aren't coming back to the farm. I goes, I, and he said, I chased them out because I didn't let them drive the tractor. I didn't let them play with the heavy equipment. You know, I didn't let them brand the cattle. I had them cleaning stalls. I had them, you know, uh, mucking out the, the pig stall or, or shoveling shit or doing all the grunt work because I never did the grunt work. That was their job. 
is it any wonder that they left now by myself on this farm? He goes, I did this. I did it to myself. I chased them away. So his message was, you know, to all the, you know, younger than him dads, you like, don't make your kids do the crap work. Let them have fun on the farm and they'll stay. Otherwise, you're going to be alone. Wait, this was, was this a boomer saying this? More like a Gen Xer, but it was the same lesson. You know, um, he, he looked to be in his 50s. I don't think he was a boomer. Okay, I was going to say, I, that I would be utterly beside myself staggering if that were a boomer saying that. I think personal responsibility is a genetic incapability for boomers. Like the entire generation, they, they just too much weed in the 70s destroyed their ability to have personal accountability. I've never met one that could take responsibility. <laughs> I, I run into that all the time. Uh, and the, the shitty thing about lack of accountability and lack of personal responsibility is there's nothing for you to grab a hold of to fix. Uh, I can't tell you how many idiots I, I deal with who are incompetent, really want to be competent, but they simply have never made the recognition that the, the, the base requirement is accountability and responsibility. If there's none of that, I can't even have an honest conversation with them about what needs to happen because uh, it's somebody else's fault. It's somebody, some, nobody else is going to, you know, everything that happened bad, bad to them is, is, you know, nothing they could have intervened on or nothing they could have changed the course of. And so you just go, okay, man, all right, see ya. The one that gets me the most is when they do the inverse accountability when they go, well, of course it's my fault because I trusted you. Like that's, that's not accountability. That's not you taking accountability. That's you blaming somebody else and just saying, well, it's my fault because, you know, I didn't train. Instead of saying, I didn't train you or I gave you too much responsibility without ensuring you're okay or something to that effect. It's just, well, I trusted you and that's why it's my fault because I trusted you. Like that's, that's not what personal accountability is. It's uh, like when Jocko Willink makes those jokes, you know, Jocko wrote that book, um, Extreme Ownership. And somebody will read the book and go, you need to take extreme ownership. Like, that's not how the book works. It's you. You are the one who takes it. You don't point at other people and say, you know, it's your fault, not mine. But that's boomers in a nutshell. But maybe it's not just boomers, honestly. Maybe it's um, maybe that's become the new American thing. It's just like it's, it's not my job to do my job. Maybe it's not my fault to take, you know, it's not my fault that it's my fault. Uh, what you just said, I, I, I can't tell you how many times I run into that. It, I, I didn't even realize it until you said that. Yeah, that um, it's my fault for trusting you kind of thing. <laughs> what's what's the word for like um, um, when you when you give somebody a compliment, but it's not a compliment. Uh, it's kind of one of those things. Uh, yeah. I, oh, God. I've run yeah, into that exact. Oh. That's like word for word. I can't tell you how many times I hear that. Uh, and when I hear that from somebody who's over 40 years old, 50 years old, I'm like, you're a failure at life. Uh, <laughs> you should have enough life skills by now that you're not, you're not falling into that trap and you're not, uh, um, <laughs> you, you know enough to take accountability for your actions and at least own, own the outcomes in your life, you know, regardless of whether you, regardless of whether you had hundred percent control over the outcome or not, you need to take ownership over the outcome, as you said. Um, yeah, it's very, very possible that millennials are never going to get there for 80% of the population. But I wonder if the other 20%, 10 or 20% will become hyper accountable to make up for it because they knew that that's what was the thing that would change the outcome in their life. Well, I mean, that's exactly the deal I was just describing at, at the beginning of this with the real estate deal we just did. 
I took ownership of closing the deal, which meant I had to do other people's jobs because if I just sat back and said, well, it's your job and then it failed. So therefore it's your fault because you didn't do your job. No, I'm the one who wanted to close this deal. I'm the one who wants to buy this property. It's my responsibility to get it done. And that means if I have to do your job for you, then I'm going to do it. So that's, um, yeah, you just, you, you have to take responsibility for this shit. It's, it's, you can't blame others. You can't take inverse responsibility. So yeah. Inverse responsibility. Maybe that's what, maybe that's the term for the, uh, well, it's my fault for trusting you, but I mean, yeah, great point. And I think this comes back to what I mentioned earlier about just budgeting a ton of extra time because you're going to do four or five people's jobs, maybe eight or nine people's jobs. And if you fail at doing their jobs, you're still going to suffer the consequences of the whole thing failing. So you just have to understand you're carrying most of their, their work on your back and you need to budget that time or else you're going to fail at it. You just don't have the extra bandwidth unless you budget for it. Exactly. And, and the, the, the dovetail out of that or piggyback out of that or whatever the cliche I could throw at you, um, as you're budgeting your time, when you're working deals for other people and you're working on some sort of commission, as you gain a reputation for being able to get this shit done in a world of everybody else fa failing you, budget into your price the fact that you have to do other people's jobs for them. Not just that it's your time, but that you shouldn't be doing it to begin with. Budget the stress, budget the headache, budget the micromanagement, budget the time into your, or factor all that into your, your, your cost, right? So that you understand it's not just that I should get a commission for this deal, I should get a certain price for this deal. It's also, I'm doing all this extra shit to make sure it gets done and done on time. Get compensated for that. You deserve it. Uh, and you, you will quickly build a reputation for being worth your price because you are the adult in the world of kiddults because you are the competent person in the room. So get paid for it. Don't, uh, don't do that shit for free. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can't, can't stress that enough. You have to charge what you're actually worth and not just a, a normal rate, because if you're competent, you are the person holding this, the entire thing on your back. And one step further, we actually budget for reputational damage um, that we you know, might anticipate from dealing with somebody. So for example, um, there are some customers we help and we're like, first of all, your borderline customer, we're only going to take you if we have tons of extra time. But second, you're going to pay a premium because we know you're going to create problems for our, um, for our suppliers, uh, and, and they're going to hate us for it. And so we're going to pay them a lot of money for their, for their frustration. So it really racks up fast. Like, I mean, some of these people will pay three times what, what they would normally have to pay, uh, just because they suck. And so we have to budget all the extra time that we're going to have to devote to make sure it happens and all of the fallout and damage to all the other parties involved so that they can budget all the extra time. It just, it, it just mushrooms. It doesn't just, it's not just additive. It compounds, it mushrooms, it's ridiculous. And uh, man, it just, every day that goes by, it just makes it more clear to me that if you're productive, you're exiting society right now because you're just sick of it. Yeah, and with the purchase of this farm, I just came one step closer to being like, going full jungle because um, I mean, I've, we'll have to get in this in the next episode. I'm. Uh, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm a little mentally fried on this one and I got a lot going on with the, the upcoming move and whatnot, but we will definitely go down into detail about running a Wi-Fi business and an IRL farm business at the same time. 
Um, and, um, <clears throat> you know, we'll, we'll really get, get deep into that. I've got some other stuff too. I've learned about, uh, using AI in the, in the voice AI 11 labs. Um, if I get time, maybe I'll, I'll pop out a quick, uh, sub stack on that, but, um, there's definitely a lot more, more topics coming up in this realm. I just, uh, I'm kind of tapped out for today. So with that guys, um, just, uh, Remember, you can you find us on Substack now, both the podcast and our, our Substack articles. We're also on Twitter at, at Wi-Fi underscore pioneers. And just uh, send us a quick message. Um, let us know what you think. You can comment directly in the Substacks or you can comment to, to us on Twitter. Let us know what you think of the episodes. If you have any questions, want us to expand on something, and uh, I promise you next week... Um, I'll have a little bit more mental energy to, to throw your way. So uh, any closing thoughts for me? Uh, invest in your kids, bring them into your life, teach them what you know. Uh, don't, don't let them get shipped out to the Marxists and the communists, uh, train them. It'll be well worth it in many, many ways, not just for the, for the immediate benefits and for the relationship, but it's, it's how you install a family legacy. Well said. So uh, I'm going to stop it right there. Have a good weekend, everybody. And we'll see you next week.